The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. By the power and the truth of our efforts this evening, may all beings everywhere be happy. May they have the causes of happiness. May all beings be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May all beings be at peace, both within themselves and around the world. And may they have the causes of inner peace of mind and body and global peace. This is our prayer. This is our intention. <coughs> if you have a cell phone, turn it off, because if it goes off, even the happiness code will not help you. Once there was a Zen master who was called Bird's Nest Roshi. He would walk around the forest looking for abandoned bird's nests. Then he would climb the tree and do sitting practice in the nest. One day, the poet Su Xie, who was also a government official, came to visit him. Standing on the ground far below, he asked, What are you doing up there? It's really dangerous. What possesses you to live and practice way up on that branch, in a bird's nest? The Roshi answered, You call this dangerous? What you are doing is far more dangerous. Living in the world, ignoring death, trying to make impermanence permanent, avoiding unpleasant circumstances or events, the reality of loss and suffering is more dangerous than going out on a limb and meditating. So hello. And happy holy days. One of the uh, most quintessential fault of modern day effort to find and maintain an authentic spiritual practice has to do with the notion that spirituality is some kind of a magical thing or a magician's wand so that after a lifetime of pursuing happiness in various forms in various animal uh, avenues looking for it in all the wrong places one may find themselves finally at a Zen center or yoga center. And again, with the notion that if I were to go to that center and meditate long enough, go to the yoga center and learn all of the postures available, then I will be happy. Tonight, we're going to take a look at that fraudulent teaching. We're going to take a look at as the story of the Zen master or Bird's Nest Roshi's story points to. 
that it is more dangerous to live one's life in pursuit of happiness, looking for it everywhere and anywhere one supposes it to be found, than it is to be finding yourself way out on a limb of a large tree meditating. So when we take a look at happiness from the Buddhist perspective, you need to have been listening to uh, the opening Dharani. From the Buddhist perspective, or for Buddhist, happiness is a way of life, a code, or a formula that has a cause, or several causes, and we're going to take a look at those causes in depth tonight, without which happiness is not possible. Happiness is not a function of having what we want or getting what we crave. Happiness at that level is usually identified as some kind of feeling or emotion in the body. And again, from the enlightened point of view, any feeling, any emotion that is here one moment and gone the next is not real and is not sustainable. So let me say that again. Any feeling or emotion, whether we're talking about happiness or romantic love or anything of those at that level, that is here one moment and gone the next, Buddhism says, is not real. This, again, idea that happiness is a feeling has been also part of that fraudulent attempt, not only of modern-day spirituality, but of our entire culture, ever convincing us that happiness relies on what you have and how much of that you have, what you do and how well you do that, and who you are particularly in relationship with. If you're in relationship with the right person, you can expect to be happy. If you're in relationship with the wrong person, you can expect not to be happy. And so as I often ask people, how's that working for you? I'm saying. So whenever we perceive happiness as a function of something apart from ourselves and a kind of presence not requiring, as we say in Buddhism, the causes of happiness. We pray, may all beings everywhere be happy. May they have the causes of happiness. May all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. And this point to, points to the difference between what we call living life out of content and living life out of context. Let me say that again. This points to the difference between expecting happiness again to kind of like appear and to have it because of the things in my life, which includes people, places, and experiences rather than what Buddhism calls the singular and exclusive source of all happiness. The other day when I was being interviewed on a TV show that, I, that will be aired in January, um, the, uh, the host asked me, you know, uh, the question, the quintessential question, how do we find the sacred in everyday living? And I replied, you're never going to find it if you don't find it within yourself first. It is nowhere to be found but within us. Likewise, happiness, the kind of happiness Buddhism talks about, which we're going to look at again in depth this evening, the happiness that is sustainable, 
the happiness that is created due to causes and circumstances. Now, when you take a look at this whole notion of cause and effect, you do not need to follow uh, the Buddha or enter some Buddhist temple to see science itself over the years has religiously pointed to the causes of climate change, the causes of good weather, the causes of bad weather. Whenever scientists talk about some kind of calamity, they talk about the causes. They want to know, like the Buddha, what caused this, what was going on either in the atmosphere or some other ecosystem or some kind of, again, environment that caused this to happen. And most of us resign ourselves to the notion that that's just science. But the truth of the matter is, science, like the Buddha 2,500 years ago, points to how reality functions. We say in Zen, if there is not a clear understanding, if you never achieve a clear understanding of how the mind operates, suffering will compound. If we never achieve a clear understanding of the law of cause and effect, the true law of cause and effect, which sometimes is referred to as karma, but I will, as I will point out tonight, that definition often used in the West is not the definition of karma that the Buddha talked about. For example, one of the problems for many of us uh, in life is this, again, fraudulent notion that there is some kind of predestination, some kind of power outside of me that has kind of like condemned me to this unhappiness or that has kind of like you know, predestined already for me. And any effort on my part, part will either be futile or at best least or, again, nothing at all. So, again, Buddhism rejects the notion of predestination, and many people mistakenly define karma, the karma of the Buddha, as such, that kind of like what we have done in the past somehow has an effect on our present life and on our future lives. To some degree, that is true. Each of us are indeed affected by our conditioning, myself included. Each of us are indeed affected by our environment, myself included. But one principal teaching of the Buddha throughout his entire lifetime was, you can change that anytime you want to. You can change your destiny anytime you want to. Now be very careful because most people hear that in a certain way. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by sharing with you something a very dear friend of mine in Philadelphia who has built for her life a very uh, abundant and prosperous and comfortable uh, retirement. And one day she called me on the phone and she said, Roshi, I need to talk because I don't want my spirituality to be about my next Mercedes. So when we talk about abundance in Buddhism, we are talking about the abundance of wisdom, the abundance of understanding, because through abundance we come to understand, and through wisdom we come to skillfully apply that understanding in a way that we discover, and you need to really listen to this, that we discover 
that we don't need much to truly be happy. We don't really need a lot to truly be happy. I am always impressed by the numbers of people that talk about living a more simpler life. But I don't want to give up my whirlpool, okay? You see, or living a more simpler life, but I don't want to give up the causes for me staying in debt. I like that stuff. And even though it keeps me in debt and I don't really ever get to the whirlpool to really enjoy it enough, I got one, you see. And we need to see that when Buddhism talks about the causes of happiness, uh, that it, again, we discover almost quickly that the effect of those causes brings great wisdom to the individual. We don't need much to be happy. Quite frankly, having, you know, being a father now for four years, and most of you who have been here before have often heard me talk about my daughter, um, we, every time she's with me, I make reference to this. I'm happy when she's home, period. That's all I need. Doesn't matter what, how much money I have in the bank. Doesn't matter what the weather is. In fact, she has a tendency to teach her father how to enjoy all kinds of weather, which I used to teach my students and thought I was really an expert at until she came along <laughs> and so forth. Now she is my teacher. So. What is necessary if we are ever going to discover happiness that is sustainable and fulfilling must be a shift in our attitude about how we obtain that or how we achieve that. Now, semantics, as you've often heard me say, is a serious issue when trying to communicate the truth. And that's what I'm communicating, the truth, not a lie. Semantics is a serious issue because we need to use such words as achieve or have. But once again, Buddhist, the Buddha taught that every source of happiness, every possibility of happiness, and everything we need to be happy is already within us. We possess the causes of happiness. And in order to fully realize that, Buddhism teaches, we need to live a life that is a function of ever cultivating and nurturing our lives with those causes. Once again, if the causes of happiness are absent, no matter what you try to do, no happiness. Or the happiness that we often experience is that kind of happiness that is here today and gone tomorrow. So once again, what we need to do is to get serious about something that kind of magically and unconsciously happens these holy day seasons, when you think about it. For many people, not all for sure, but certainly for many people, this time of the year isn't difficult to be happy. This time of the year, it isn't difficult to find joy. This time of the year, it seems to be everywhere we look, except in the mall in Philadelphia where they bring tasers to shoot you to get the things, you know, see. But otherwise, joy and happiness seems to be a very easy, if you will, commodity to realize this time of the year. And that is why in the advertisement for tonight, I spoke about taking a look at what's the secret this time of the year? What is really going on? And again, when you take a look at what is going on 
this time of the year, you discover one of the sing singular, but certainly not exclusive, most powerful causes of happiness. And that is the action of giving from my heart. The action of wanting to give in a way to make other happy. And March of next year will mark my 39th anniversary of doing this. And for the last 39 years, I've said the same thing to everyone. I have found, when I look back over the course of those years, that the times when I am most happy, most confident, most content, is when I am doing the work of serving others. It is, as that one teacher said, and many others, it is in giving that we find the causes for happiness. Happiness as a feeling is unreliable, and when we focus on happiness as a feeling, we set ourselves up for inevitable disappointment and suffering compounds. So when we tend to live our lives, as I've been talking about so far, out of the belief that happiness is this feeling, we kind of like wait around to show up, and when it's here, everything's just great, and again, when it goes, just as great as it was for so many people, it becomes that terrible, you're saying. And it's not because there's anything wrong with that happiness. It's because, as the Buddha taught, and as the Zen story of uh, Bird's Nest Roshi teaches, you know, the way we try to do this is upside down. And I want to go back to that story very briefly again. The story of the Bird's Nest Roshi out of that story comes a fundamental, profound Zen teaching. The world is upside down. Now, when we first hear that, we immediately go to that place possibly where we think, yep, see, the world is bad. The world is wrong. No, it's not what that says. What that says is our perception of the world is different than the world really is. The world is the opposite of our perception. Just as our perception of how to be happy is the opposite of our perception. And that is the teaching of Birds and S. Roshi. The world is upside down. The way we perceive it, the world really is the other way. It really is the other way. And by that, for tonight's topic, we mean that after living a life of pursuing happiness and pursuing it, as Pema Chodron says, in all the wrong places, we need a shift and a willingness on our part to look again and examine, if you will, again, how's that working for you? You see, and how has that worked for you? Happiness as a feeling or an emotion, happiness as a feeling or an emotion is unreliable, and when we see it only as a feeling or an emotion, that is to say we're happy only when we feel that way, we set ourselves up to be disappointed, and we create, a content, we create an environment for ourselves where suffering can compound. Now, happiness, like love, certainly involves a feeling and emotion. No question about it. It's, again, how I try to teach my daughter when I say to her, Daddy absolutely loves you, Daddy absolutely adores you, but you need to know that I don't always feel that way. And that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean I love you any less in those moments, and that doesn't mean I don't find uh, as much joy 
as I do in other moments. So happiness, like love, certainly involves an emotion and a feeling. But most of us seem to, again, interrelate with that type of happiness in a way that it is necessary, that is to say, something outside us needs to be going on. Either he needs to be acting a certain way, or I need this kind of bank account, or if I won you know, the Mega Million uh, lottery couple, uh, last week or so, then I will be happy. And again, in 39 years, when I talk to people, and especially those who have returned over and over from when we were in Mount Holly and Cinnaminson and Riverton and now in Chemung, uh, especially when I see them for the first time, which was a case the other day for me, uh, after many years, I ask them if they're happy. I said, so are you happy? And usually the response goes something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. Roshi, I can say I'm happy. I'm not happy, but I can say I'm happy. But I'm not happy, you know saying. There's always this kind of desiring for more, better, or different. And one of the things we're going to take a look at as the causes of happiness this evening has to do with what Pema Chodron calls staying. And in the context of tonight's uh, dialogue, staying here means staying with what is, you know, going on in the moment when you're happy, long enough to learn something from it. Let me see. Again, most of us stay with it as long as the feeling or emotion we call happiness is present. Then when something happens and that disappears, we find ourselves off on the pursuit of happiness again. And again, those of you who've been with me for many years have often heard me say, we Americans have mastered the pursuit of happiness, like no other nation. We have mastered it, but very, very, very little mastery in freedom and life. I have to remind myself about those inalienable rights because sometimes I doubt they really exist. Yeah. So very, very, very little mastery with freedom and life. Any feeling that comes in one moment and can be gone in the next is not real. Real and fulfilling happiness is a function of one's point of view and a clear and specific way of living one's life. In other words, happiness is a way of life. And this way of life, this use of the term way of living, is synonymous to what the Buddha identified 2,500 years ago about his singular interest. And he said to us, my singular interest is to learn how to live skillfully in a phenomena that is ever impermanent, ever changing, and uncertain. So when we talk about living a way of life, whether we're talking about it as what I identify as authentic spirituality, that it is a holistic way of life. It is not something, as the ancient Zen masters used to say, if you spend your day lying and pilfering, meditation will not cure anything, they're saying, or yoga, or anything else. So this happiness, which for me is synonymous to a sense of peace of mind, despite whatever is going on around me, the sense of confidence that in the end all will be well, 
when you really take a look at what all of us really are asking for when we are asking for happiness, it's that stuff. We want to know that despite the fact that there are clearly things in the world we have no power over, we cannot change, you know, that we are still going to be able to remain grounded and confident and so forth, and that in the end, in the end, all is well. Now, in this holy season, many people call that faith, whatever that faith may be for you. The word faith is also used in Buddhism. The faith that all beings are enlightened. And by the use of the term, all beings are enlightened, the Buddha wanted us to understand that everything has been designed to work. You know, uh, again, back to the television interview, the first thing that she touched upon in one of my bullet points that I offered or provided her with was that we are hardwired for this stuff. This is not something you attain. It is not something you achieve. It's something you awaken to because when you look at nature, when you look at the upside-downness of our perception of the world and flip it over, the first thing you discover is that this was all designed to work. And it does work until I put my nose into it. You see, until I mess it up somehow. So p possibly, if you want to be happy in your relationships, I tell people, you've got to leave. You know, maybe that's the answer. Who knows? Suggested point of view, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. So I want to offer that to you as a context for your spiritual practice. And the reason why I want to offer that to you as a context for your spiritual practice, what Chardin said when he said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. I want to offer that to you as a context for your spiritual practice because in order for that to work, what I've been talking about so far is absolutely necessary. We need to shift. We need to turn around. We need to repent, to turn around and go back. We need to flip this upside-down view upside down again in order to see that we are things of the stars, whatever term you want to use. If spiritual being isn't in your you know, vocabulary, things of the stars. We are made of, of the stuff of the heavens, the stuff of space. We are made up of the atoms and the neutrons. However way you want to call it, we are. And when you come from that place, everything changes. And by that I mean you can't live from that place without making changes in the way you do it. You can't do it. Just like the place we live now, human beings striving for some kind of spiritual experience that's going to light us on fire, doesn't work. In order to live from the place that we already possess all the wisdom and knowledge for our own happiness, it's already within us. And we have to stop looking for the causes of happiness somewhere outside ourselves and turn around into that space which is the stuff of heaven, you know, the stuff of the stars, 
and learn what we can there. I'm about to get naked if we don't lower the heat, please. <laughs> Which is fine with me. <laughs> My daughter says I'm cute, so can we lower the heat? That's what I meant. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So, in order for us to enter the new year, okay, to enter the new year with possibility, which is what we all, you know, kind of like think of and celebrate in two weeks from now on New Year's Eve, the notion that uh, this year is over and the new year presents possibility. In order to enter the new year with any kind of real possibility, once again, we need the causes for possibility. Suzuki Roshi was famous for his coined phrase when he said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the experts, there are few. There are few. So it's kind of like we need to look at where we are coming from every day. And this doesn't just happen tonight. And it doesn't just happen tomorrow night or the next time you take to the cushion. For me, it happens every day. For me, part of my spiritual practice involves aligning my thoughts, my speech, and my actions with I am a spiritual being having a human experience. Now, how do I operate in the world that way? And it's something that happens every day. It's no different than a parent who knows that she or he absolutely loves that child and has all the intention in the world to never act or think or say you know, anything that could be harmful to the child. And you know, in the last four years, I've probably messed up about a dozen times, maybe more, who knows. But that is the intention we have, and that is why I say, because we are going to mess up, because everything is new to be learned, because we are going to mess up, this realignment has to take place on a daily basis. And that is why, as we take a look at the markings of a happy way of life, we cannot avoid something that I have been talking about for 39 years. We have to have a regular practice of seated meditation, where we take ourselves to that cushion and we, if, you know, if you will, make that adjustment with our attitude and our point of view. So I want to talk about what Buddhism calls markings, markings of a truly happy way of living. By markings, we mean if something is truly part of a happy way of living, it always has this mark. And these markings are intended to be used by us, again, as skillful means instruments for again realizing this potential we have for sustainable and fulfilling happiness. The first has to do again with our point of view. So if we can just take a moment to use our imagination, we can try to use your imagination to think about the question, what does a spiritual being having a human experience look like day to day? What are the mechanics of that? How does that operate? And again, as I said, when you seriously take a look at it, the first thing that is evident is that it's completely different than the way we usually 
operate from day to day. So for example, it begins with one of the first markings is has to do with the way we view the stuff that shakes us up in life, the way we view it, the way we view mishaps. So I'm going to read the first marking to you and then talk about it. View all mishaps, disappointments, unfulfilled expectations, not as oppositional to one's life, which leads us to conclude something is wrong with me or with my life or our relationship, but rather as a part of the spiritual path, rather as a part of the relationship. And I want you to see this because you can only get this by seeing it. As we view disappointment, unfulfilled expectations, you know, a lack of getting what we want, when we take a look at that and all that's involved with that point of view, ego, that part of our mind, that part of our consciousness, when mishaps show up, immediately goes there. Immediately goes, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my life. There's something wrong with our relationship. And when I talk about the context for sustainable and fulfilling relationships, as I will again in a seminar later in the new year, when I talk about that, one of the things I'm very, very um, emphatic about is that if you're going to have a relationship that works, by that I mean not one that is going to be in some kind of Shangri-La utopia all the time, and the sex is great all the time, and she does everything she's supposed to do, and he always says, hello, dear, and remembers the anniversary date. Not, that's not what I'm talking about. If we're going to have any kind of sustainable relationship, we need to view everything that shows up in that relationship, not as an opposition to the relationship, but an opportunity for both parties, both spiritual beings, learning what it's like to be human and related. If we are spiritual beings having a human experience, therefore, the work is every difficulty, every mishap, every unfulfilled expectation that ever shows up in my life is not oppositional to my spiritual path. The other day I was visited by someone who I never knew before. She called me. And she was a monk from Shasta Abbey, which is in Northern California. And she had taken a leave of absence. She's on one until October. And so she heard about me through, again, someone who used to come to uh, Jizuan Monastery in Sinaminsin and has visited me in Shimang on several occasions. So she's, you know, she said, let me take a shot and call Roshi and see if um, he'll take me for some spiritual direction. So I agreed to do that, and I'm glad I did, because she bought the best ricotta chocolate cookies I ever tasted. Oh, I told her, forget Shasta Abbey, move in. Or at least leave me the recipe before you go. So uh, long story short, she was experiencing a crisis of faith and wanted direction and to how to work with the question, should I remain a monk? She had been a monk now, ordained for 15 years at Shasta Abbey, a little longer. Should I remain a monk? And what was going on for her was all of these feelings and emotions questioning that. And I asked her to do one thing, and I, you know, I have to tell you, 
again, as a perfect example of how smart I really am, you could see the energy shift in her, and that it was obvious she never thought about it. It was obvious that she never considered the possibility that what she was going through in this moment was part of the path, and not a message to give up being a monk. So one of the things I did was I talked about the movie that inspired me very much when I was a very young Catholic boy called Shoes of the Fisherman. Remember that movie with Anthony Quinn? No? Sorry. Okay. If not, watch this guy in Rome. It'll tell you all about it. Okay. So there's a scene in the movie where he has this crisis of faith. He's trying to change the church. He's trying to change the world just like Francis is and so forth. And he's, just, he's coming close to abdicating the throne and so forth. So he's visited by an oppositional cardinal who he actually resents and doesn't like because he sees him as kind of like causing the death of a friend of his uh, in the stress that he created. So they come together and it's a powerful scene and he shares finally with the cardinal. He asks him to be his confessor and he shares with him, I think I'm going to abdicate. And the cardinal says to him, Tu es Petro, you are Peter. And I had never forgotten those words because later on, as they began to come to fruition in my own reflection of being a monk now for 39 years, the teaching was just because, whether you're a monk, whether you're married, whether you're in love, whether you're pursuing a new career, whether you're an entrepreneur and trying something new, just because opposition or what we view as oppositional mishaps, failures, and so forth, come up. The suffering is not a cause of those mishaps. The mishaps does not cause the suffering. What causes the suffering is our context for holding them. So what causes the suffering in me when I find myself upset about what you did or I find myself upset about the way the world is or the way my life is going is not the stuff I am viewing as the cause, but my, the way I'm holding that stuff. I see it as a threat or opposition to my life. When in fact, as I said to my sister monk that day, you are a monk, act accordingly. Let your monastic life be the context for which you approach everything. That is your training, that is your teaching. And stop, stop you know, living in a fantasy world that somehow for monks, it should always work. And you'll find the power to uh, find the answer to your questions. And I could watch her energy shift because she never considered the possibility that she could have a life with difficulty and still remain true to that vow, whatever that may be. And again, for her, it's the vow of a monk. For you, it could be a vow of something else. It doesn't really matter what the vow is. The people that often inspire us the most in life, the ones that kind of like move us to really go on, are people of integrity. We wonder how they can keep going. We see, you know, in such tragic moments as 9-11 and other moments as such in the past, how can they keep going? One of them for me was the assassination of JFK. And after that had all happened, my mind was constantly about Jackie. How is she keeping going? Because everything I knew about their relationship was that she was crazy about this guy, no matter what. 
In fact, in a book that was written by the Secret Service agent who was on the back of that limousine that day, and the one in the limousine, they both gave account to what she said to him at the moment she realized he had been killed. And it was, oh, Jack, look what they've done to you. I had so much more to say to you. So much more to say to you. So just like many of us on those horrific occasions where we find ourselves wondering, can I go on? There's not a day that goes by where I think about that and, you know, God forbid something happened to my daughter. You know, what would that, what would that take for me? And again, the people we often see able to go on no matter what and to stick at it no matter what are people of integrity. And when you take a look at this definition in the dictionary of the word integrity, Webster writes about it this way. Integrity is a strict adherence to a particular way of being. Integrity is a way of life that no matter what happens in your life, you A, do not betray that, and B, that's where we Buddhists call finding refuge. We find refuge in those difficult times in our way of life. So the three refuges that uh, Buddha uh, set out in the Buddha Dharma has to do with taking refuge in our Buddha nature. That is to say, as I said earlier this evening, that we are all hardwired to make it work. We are all hardwired for wisdom and understanding, love, patience, and joy. That's what we mean by finding refuge in our Buddha nature. But every time something happens, and you, like I said to her, uh, the monk, when I was you know, giving her direction, because part of what was going on for her had to do with her relationship with her superiors and other people, and I said to her, every time, you know, you, I said, to her, you have enough people in your life that are going to make you wrong. How about you don't be one of them? You see? How about you don't be one of them? And I was sharing with Rhonda earlier tonight. Uh, my daughter was dancing. She loves to dance. And she does these out of spontaneous gymnastic moves. And she does them more and more so perfectly. So I asked her tonight. I said to her, kid, where'd you learn to do that? Are you, are you taking classes when you're not with daddy or what have you? And she said, no. I said, well, where did you learn to do that? She said, my mind. My mind teaches me. My mind teaches me. And there's this famous line from the movie Crazy Wisdom where uh, Chungam Trungpa Rinpoche confronts Ram Das, who apparently prepares all of his teachings in writing. And, and he asks Ram Das, don't you trust your mind? Don't you trust your mind? So this integrity I talk about that is a context for happiness has to do with making a conscious choice, whether we feel that way or not. And you're going to find that all of these markings work only if you're willing to reject the notion you have to feel that way. I am confident, having been in similar experiences, and probably some of you in this room as well, that the first responders in 911 by the time that night came, was too exhausted, did not feel like going in and digging anymore and, and being where they wanted to be. I am confident of that, as I'm sure you are. So we need to kind of like reject this notion that we are only powerful when we feel like we are. 
Not at all. Not at all. Sometimes it is in our weakest moments, especially as parents for our children, that we have the most powerful thing to offer our children. In relationships, sometimes it is in our weakest moments that we have probably the secret to the sustainability of that relationship because we've gone through years and years with our spouse or partner and, and so forth as if we're never afraid. And then in this one moment we offer a view of our fear or vulnerability and something changes in the relationship. Something changes in the relationship. Integrity, a strict adherence to a way of life that has been well honed and proven to cause happiness is absolute, is absolute. And that is one of the markings of truly happy people. When you f find someone who is truly happy, you find that they live their life that way. They live their life that way. And I have facetiously referred to it in the past as Nike Buddhism. Just do it. You see, whether you feel that way or not. And you know what? I mean it. There, probably in the course of my own life experience throughout the day, uh, I feel that way maybe about 3% in the course of the day. Uh, tonight I come to you burning up with what I was going on in my body, exhausted, I didn't get any sleep last night, yada, 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 yada. You know, you don't need me to tell you my story, and so forth. And it's about really having a passion for living life. And that is what uh, Suzuki Roshi meant when he talked about the beginner's mind. Children have a passion. If you read my newsletter this, uh, this month, and if you didn't, you should. You should read it every month and so forth. I don't do this for myself, you know. And if you read it, uh, you know, I talk about how my daughter doesn't care about the details. All she cares about is running and jumping and climbing and getting as much as she possibly can in any given moment. She always has a passion for living. And unfortunately, I'm beginning to see that a little bit dwindle. It's inevitable that it will for her, because adults will mess her up. So I tell people, don't grow up. Stay not so dangerous, if you will. Drive all disappointments into one meaning. So there's this exercise that you've heard me talk about in the past, and it has to do with asking yourself three questions when you find this instability in your personal experience. And one of them has to do with, the second question has to do with, what meaning am I giving to this? What meaning am I giving to this? And the Buddha, again, 2,500 years ago, said to us, everything that we are in the great scheme of things and in the you know, ordinary scheme of things, including how I feel in this very moment, is a function of what I'm thinking, is a function of my thoughts. Thoughts give rise to speech, speech gives rise to actions, and so we say at Pine Wind, quiet mind, quiet body, quiet body, quiet environment. Quiet environment, peace on earth. The opposite is true also. Whatever thoughts or meaning I am giving to something works like this. Life is empty and meaningless by nature. Life is empty and meaningless by nature. Therefore, if that is true, and I said to you earlier it is because I don't tell you lies, I tell you the truth. 
Life is empty and meaningless by nature. Therefore, whatever it looks like to you is what you've made it. Therefore, be careful with how or what meaning you are giving to it. You see? So the Buddha streamlines that teaching, or Buddhism streamlines that teaching in this way. Instead of looking for blame when something happens, you know, uh, the Japanese have a saying, um, you know, you Americans always look for someone to blame when business goes bad, okay? We look for the cause. We look for the cause. So instead of looking for someone to blame, this is the second marking, including yourself or the things in your life that you think is causing it, like the weather or his attitude today or the way he woke up in the morning or the way she said something to you or others for what has happened, first view yourself as cause in the matter and as the solution in the matter also. What do I mean by cause in the matter? My experience in any given moment does not come from anyone else but me. So whatever I am feeling in that moment, I am causing. And when I am willing to take responsibility for being the cause of my experience, the stuff that's going on within me, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you do something and I have this reaction. That's my stuff. When I view myself as the cause of that stuff and not you, there's no one to blame. And when I stop blaming you, what happens? See? You stop blaming myself. Yeah, you stop blaming yourself and there is potential for making it work. Because the thing that gets in the way, you, if you're going to fall in love with me, which I understand is easy to do, but you better be ready for the work. <laughs> the thing that often gets in the way of relationships is this blame game. We are always trying to blame someone for our unhappiness. In the same way that we find, you know, we, we have this view that something or someone has made us happy. No, the truth of the matter is, is that in every given moment, Whatever is going on within me is my stuff. I am bringing that to the moment. So the teaching is to filter every meaning to every disappointment to one place. And that comes back to, again, the three questions. It comes back to, for example, when I filter it down to, I am causing this experience within me. I am, I am unhappy because I'm seeing this a particular way, or I'm bringing an unfulfilled expectation to what happened, or I'm bringing blame, whatever it may be. In that moment, once I choose that as the cause, I'm the only one that can correct that. And by that I mean I am the one that can correct that, not you, not you. Because every time you act that way, the other way, the flip side, every time you act that way, I'm going to blame you. And when I blame you, I surrender my power to you. When I blame the weather or anything else for what's going on in my life, I surrender my power. And this is the quintessential question I ask everyone. You ready? Mm -hmm. When you do that, what do you get to do in life? Complain. <laughs> yes, but what do you get to do? Stay in the same place. You get to wait. 
That's all. Your life becomes a waiting game for what? Them to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a Sicilian household. And you need to know, they don't change. <laughs> Nobody changes. While you're waiting for them to get it right, guess what they're waiting for? You to get it right. You know what I'm saying? So there might be some blame to go around. But what I'm saying to you is operating from blame and shame and guilt and fault only compound suffering. So what I want to do is find out how I can navigate my emotions, my emotional state through this difficult time for however long it is. And when I take responsibility for that, I leave, you know, I, I, I kind of free up the space for you to do what you need to do. You see, and when I free up the space for you to do what you need to do, somehow we miraculously end up moving on with each other. You see, moving on with each other. Second, view the happening as a potential opportunity to learn which, already, which always leads to growth. There is not a lesson. The very definition of to learn implies growing. You stop learning, you stop growing. You stop growing, you become senile, and they put you away. You see? So, when we view every opportunity as an, every situation as an opportunity to learn something from it, particularly to learn again how I can act more skillfully. And that was, again, the Buddhist singular. I mean, he said this all the time. Listen, I'm not interested in metaphysical questions of the heavens or if there's a God or life after death. I want to know how to get through this life skillfully. I want to know how to get through impermanency skillfully. And that's what we're talking about. As I said a moment ago, there may be blame to go around. This is not denial. This is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky thing and saying, oh, well, you know, he hit me just because he had a bad childhood. No, it's not that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is I need to take responsibility. I need to take responsibility for what I want in my life, and I need to be the, the creator of that because you can't create that for me. And the reason why we don't know that goes back to what my daughter said. We don't trust our minds. And the reason why we don't trust our minds is because we have been told not to. Look at our society and culture. A nation dependent on everything else to show them the way. You know? You, you know, what should I get her for Christmas? If you need to ask that question, you, you've got a bigger problem than that. If you've been with her for 20 years, you've got a bigger problem than that. And if you need to go to QVC, I mentioned QVC only because he was the first guest on the show. The guy used to be the runner of QVC. He's no longer there, but he used to run Q, QVC. So uh, if you need to go to QVC and have them tell you, and it was interesting because in the conversation, uh, the dialogue he and I was having while we were waiting for all this to come together was that he, his job was to train the people on television how to convince you you needed this. You know what I'm saying? And if they can convince you you needed this, you've got a bigger problem than what to buy her for Christmas. You see? And what we're talking about is the only way we get that back. 
And so for, if, no, if not for any other reason, when we reclaim that power back, we, we find our bank account, bank account might grow. I'm saying, I have someone in my life that I love so dearly, and everything in her house is bought from QVC. Everything. <laughs> everything. So I said to this guy, I know who kept your stock up. <laughs> I know who did that. Any questions? Hi, kid. Hi, may I ask a question? Certainly. Um, I can change the way I react when I'm offended. And I think I've been able to do that over the past three years somewhat. But other people, like you said, don't change. I had a recent experience where a friend said to me, do you like what I'm wearing? And I just unfiltered said, no, I don't. And the person is offended and hasn't spoken to me. And I'm fine with that. I'm OK. But when I'm with that person, there's going to be negative energy coming from them. And I can't change it. But I'm maybe I should have been more skillful on such a trivial question and just said, yes. You contradicted yourself. You told me you're fine with that, but when I'm with him, there'll be negative things coming at me. So you're not really fine with that. So here we come back to, you need to, dis you need to do a little more work on that, okay? You are not responsible for my reaction to your words. I react to your words or your actions according to my history and conditioning. Because my mind, like your mind and everyone else's mind, remember what we started out with? Without a clear understanding about how the mind is operating from moment to moment, suffering compounds. And every time something happens out here, whether it's a person's reaction or a change of the environment or what have you, and the mind is perceiving it as some kind of threat or oppositional, it is, all that's going on in that moment is what therapists call projection. The mind can only relate to what's going on out here by referring back to the information back here, okay? So if I never resolved my own importance about what I have to say, if I never resolved that, for an example, if I never resolved that I have value and I have something to say, whether anyone likes it or not, that's who I am. And if I never resolved what happens in that, because that's a child, we learn that early on in childhood, don't we? Our parents make us wrong the moment we speak up. Okay, and that's what that emotion and feeling that you know that kind of unstableness is. So what I'm saying to you is that you've certainly done work because I've known you long enough, and there's more work to do. Because again, I don't care. Welcome to my world. Do you know how many people I've upset over 39 years? <laughs> okay, I can only you know, you know, it's like uh, the Sufis have a wonderful saying: "You are not a real teacher." until you have at least 10,000 people who hate you. <laughs> I, love Trun I love Trungpa Rinpoche. He says, the role of the teacher is to insult you. Okay? That's the role of the teacher. Maybe that's why there's not too much learning going on. You see, because we're always looking for these teachers that are going to make us feel good. You know? And that's nice. You know, days, days your daughter makes you feel good, my daughter makes me feel good, but reality is they can't keep that up. <laughs> <laughs> and so forth. So I really want you and everyone else in the room to see that that experience that comes up
when that person reacts that way, that's going on within me. It's not going on out there and she's shooting it at me, okay? Or he's shooting it at me, it's going on in me. Now my work is to learn from that. That's why we say, see everything as a learning lesson. So now I got some work to do, you know? And I'm the same way. There are, you know, my parents are 85 years old and so forth, and you know, today we had dinner, a big celebration, and you know, my mother looked and said something to my daughter a certain way that, you know, like that, you know, and I had that work to take care of, you see, to learn about that. Now, the, the work is what I call, and we'll talk about this more, what I call staying on mission, okay? The work is about staying on mission, all right? So, for example, if my mission as a parent is to parent my child in the best way possible, which involves loving kindness and compassion for her, or as she often reminds me, Daddy, I'm only four years old. I'm, I'm just four years old. I don't think like you do, okay? To stay on mission is to, in those moments when I feel that energy to strangle, I remember that I love this child. I remember that. That's what we mean by staying on mission. So that's a very personal way. Now there's, you know, obviously in the workplace and in the world, it gets a little bit more abstract possibly, okay? Nonetheless, it has to do with the question, is this reaction of mine getting me any closer to where I really want to be? And if it isn't, I need to find out what I need to do to get closer to where I want to be. And where do you, where do you want to be? You want to be at peace? You want to be a t complete, un unconditional love for yourself. Unconditional love for yourself means you say what you're saying, let the chips drop where they will. I mean, if you're mean, that's a whole other story. Now you got to find out why you're mean, I say. But if you tell the truth, you know, that is a lesson I'm teaching Katie every day. That is top of the list, to tell the truth and not to be afraid of the truth. So we have, the, I've created this exercise for that so that no matter what she does, even if she has put my robes in the washer with bleach, you know, no matter what she does, if she comes to me and says, Daddy, I put your robes in the washer with bleach, I don't, I say thank you. Thank you for telling your father the truth. Thank you for that, I see. Because the truth does set us free. It sets us free. Because what we want more than anything else is to be able to be in our lifetime. And there's this wonderful line again from out of Africa where um, Robert Refford says to Meryl Streep, I don't want to get to the end of my days only to discover I live someone else's life. And you know what? That's what it's about. That's what it about. That's what it's about. There's not a bird in the air and an animal in the forest that thinks of being anything else but what they are. Yeah? Anyone else? Hi. When you were talking about conflict and relationships, that eventually you will come together. What if you should part? <coughs> what if you shouldn't come together? Then you shouldn't come together. Oh. But you shouldn't come, you should part in peace, which takes a while sometimes. I speak from experience, okay? I speak from experience. In 2011, someone I trusted more than anything in my life, 
tore my heart apart. And I'm still working on that piece. You know what I'm So it's not about some ideal. Sometimes we don't stay together, like you said. Okay? But if you're still struggling with that, why not move back in? See what I'm saying? You need to find, and I don't know if the, you're talking about yourself or whoever, I'm just using <coughs> ubiquitous you. You need to find the peace of mind that this is the decision you made, right or wrong, and make that work for yourself. <coughs> you need to do that. You need to make that work. Because you're the only one that can make that work. No one else can make that work for you, only you. No one else can make the changes in my life that took place then when I least expected it, had no clue. No one else can fix that for me but me. Okay? So yeah, we're not talking about where we all, I said this earlier, this is not about Shangri-La where he behaves the way we want and she says the right things all the time. No, this is about sometimes it doesn't work and we find peace with that because we must find peace with that because if we don't find peace with that, we carry that on our shoulders and it informs the rest of our life. Mm -hmm. Just like if we don't find peace with all the mistakes our parents made in parenting us, we carry that the rest of our life, you see? So that's where, again, forgiveness by the real meaning of forgiveness, which is to give up the fight, as in resentment for. Forgiveness is so essential because what we don't, whatever we resist will persist. And, it, and if it, we resist it long enough, we become it. So, yeah. So now it's about not being together and making that kind of relationship work. And by work, I mean I have peace of mind about that. I have peace of mind about that. doesn't mean, you know, we get together for the holidays, necessarily. Or we go out once in a while, you know. It's kind of like the first day... One of my first dogs bit me, okay? The lesson there was never to let the dog bite me again, okay? No matter how much I loved the dog. So I had to find out what made that dog want to bite me. And I started to behave accordingly. It's kind of like I tell my daughter because she has a tendency to run into my beagle's face and not understand why it goes, <laughs> you know, at her. You know Don't go in its face. So it works like that. And my heart is with you if you're the one you're talking about. And I mean that sincerely. Because that's got that, in my opinion, after years and years and years of being involved in all forms of losses and death, I can understand that is the most difficult. Okay? I'm with you, kid. Hi. Yes, sir. No, don't call me sir. I worked in the Army. <laughs> <laughs> call her sir. <laughs> 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 is, uh, is contentment absolute? By absolute, what do you mean? The absence of discontentment? Yes. No. No. Contentment is synonymous with my definition of freedom. Learning to be content is real freedom. Freedom is the ability to remain confident and grounded despite what is going on around you, okay? Despite what is going on within you. I may be scared to death. Again, when we take a look at, you know, this, this media 
portrayal of courageous men and women that go into battle and into buildings and become heroes. We, we walk away, again, according to the media, this idea that they weren't afraid to do what they did. No, a hero is someone who is scared shitless and still acts accordingly, okay? Still acts accordingly. If you don't think a fireman, because I was a volunteer fireman as a kid, you don't think a fireman isn't afraid of that fire coming down on his head while he's in there fighting it and trying to save some souls. Uh, try it. <laughs> you see? So I'm very emphatic about that. You notice how emphatic I came back about that? Because when we take a look at the markings as we go on, when we take a look at those markings, one of them has to do with lighten up. It don't mean nothing. Okay? <laughs> Life is empty and meaningless. Contentment is remembering that. Eh. You know, when I first started doing this work back in 1975, some high school friends of mine that went to MIT and one became a nuclear physicist for the Navy and Boston University and all that would come down, uh, you know, in the summertime and work with me with the, at that time I was working with abused women and single mothers. And they would come down, and sometimes on a Friday or Saturday night, we retired to my small bedroom, which was my only living facility, and we'd have a couple beers together and talk. And my, my, my one friend, George, always asked me the same question. You know, how, you know, like, how are you doing this? And my answer was always the same. I'm making this up as I go along, okay? That's how I'm doing it, you see? And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I learn from both, okay? So contentment is not the absence, just like peace is not the absence of struggle. And all you need to do is ask a Zen student that's been in training long enough and they'll tell you that. So if we don't learn that lesson, once again we find ourselves stuck in this idealistic approach, which will always disappoint us. What makes Zen Buddhism different from other major religions is most major religions are focused on this kind of idealism. Zen is focused on realism. It comes from realism. And realism says, sometimes I'm going to behave the way I'm telling you to behave. And sometimes I'm not going to. Get over it. You see? Like that. Okay? But always be content with yourself. You're all you got. If you turn on you, what's left? I tell the story when I was in second grade Catholic school, we were supposed to write an essay on who we wanted to be when we grew up. I wrote, wrote down one word, me. <laughs> and the nuns proceeded to beat the crap out of me for being so bold. <laughs> Fresh article. Huh? Fresh article. IHM. <laughs> As my friend Father DePaul says, the I hate men nuns. They were, they, they were good for beating the crap out of me. <laughs> God bless them. Did you have a question? Something I share? just wanted to say that um, recently the Pope Francis said uh, in response to Rush Limbaugh calling him a Marxist, he said, um, Marxism is wrong, but I know many Marxists who are very good people, so I'm not offended. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was perfect to what Sure. Just sure. Yeah. I can remember early on uh, another teacher saying to me, if you're prepared to spend the rest of your life getting, you know, judged and condemned for everything that comes out of your mouth, then for forward on. <laughs> I said, otherwise, 
go back to the pool. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. And that comes back to contentment. If you're not content with yourself, this guy knows who he is. This church has the greatest opportunity it has had in years, okay? And I always felt that the Catholic Church, having been born and raised in it, was going to be a powerful force one day. He knows who he is. He doesn't care about what Rush Limbaugh or anyone else says. He doesn't care what his cardinals say. And they all are going to try to figure out how to kill him with the apple <laughs> pie again. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. I like him. I like him a lot. Anyone else? Any other questions? All right, a couple more and then I'll let you go for your break. So when we take a look at drive all disappointments into one meaning, there is a central statement. Notice the conversation in your mind as soon as disappointment presents itself. And as I said earlier, when we take the time to be mindful of our reaction before acting on that circumstance or situation, and this is what that is, noticing the story in our head. You will notice that the story is always of the same nature. Something's wrong with me, or something's wrong with my life. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. If you need to find wrong in your life, that's, how about death? That really pisses me off when I die. Okay? So, nothing's necessarily wrong. And we need to move away from that immediate reaction and change it if it does not help you to go where you want to be. Remember what the Buddha said. He wasn't, you know, the, again, the Western teaching of his version of karma was not what he said. What he said is that you can change your destination at any moment. And you change your destination when you listen to him when he says everything finds its birth. We birth our future from our thoughts. We birth our future from our thoughts. Uh, Dr. Wayne Dreyer does a lot of work in the fact that when we are sleeping at night, that's the consciousness level he talks about where we are actually creating tomorrow, actually creating that, and so forth. So we can change the story anytime we want, but we don't want to, do we? It feels better to make you wrong. It feels better to blame you. It's a hell of a lot easier. I can blame you and go to the movies. <laughs> the same. Taking full responsibility for my stuff is, is work. It requires a willingness on my part to A, love myself unconditionally, and B, love you unconditionally. And we only want to talk about that. We don't want to really do it. Be generous with your prosperity and talents. So we are in the season of giving. And it seems like people are not hesitant at this time of the year to just go out and get gifts to give to others. So in Buddhism, dana, which is what it is called, paramita, is considered one of the highest uh, paramitas or ways of wisdom to live your life, as I, as I say it at the monastery, as a benefit for others. So generosity with my financial gifts, with my talents, with my time, 
You know, just the, just the simple act, and yet most difficult for so many of us at times, to stop and listen to what someone has to say to us, rather than thinking about, well, I gotta get going, and I gotta get going, and I gotta get going. To be generous with our own prosperity and our talents is one of the markings of a truly happy life. Make altruism and giving part of your life, and be purposeful about it. Researcher Elizabeth Dunn found that those who spend money on others reported much greater happiness than those who spent it on themselves. Buddhism has always emphasized the practice of dana or giving. Giving hasn't been seen purely as the exchange of material possessions, however. Giving in Buddhist terms includes non-tangible such as emotional support, taking time to just listen rather than you know, having to fix or correct and so forth. And that can be sometimes, depending again on what's going on in your life, a very difficult thing to do. Um, Strength to the weak, one's time and talents. And which are the three factors of the donor? There is the case where the donor, before giving, is glad. While giving, his or her mind is bright and clear and after giving is gratified. After giving is gratified. And those three levels are the three levels of the experience of happiness. You see, The desire to give makes us happy. The act of giving makes us happy. And then after we have given and someone says, thank you, that's even better. That gratifies us. So part of the marking, one of the markings of the happiness code or happiness life has to do with generosity. In fact, when Buddhism was first, first shows up on the scene, it was, by tradition, a monastic practice exclusively. It was traditionally, you left home, entered a monastery, and practiced with other unsuri. As Buddhism started to grow in the day of the Buddha, and especially today, he realized that that not everyone can do that. And yet there was such a great outpouring of wanting to achieve this realization and this understanding. So he set up the practice of dana paramita for lay people. He said, this is how you enter nirvana. Give what you have to support not only the monks but others. Learn to give of yourself for others. And that practice when it is here and out here, is powerful enough to transform you in the world. So generosity is absolute. Be grateful to everyone and express gratitude regularly. When's the last time you really said thank you? But I mean really said it. Not kind of like in passing because they opened the door for you, but where you really took time for a moment. Uh, the practice, of this practice for me is very real when I go to diners and restaurants, okay? And like everyone else, I have a limited amount of funds in my pocket too. But I always consider two things. One, these poor people live on their tips. And two, there ain't too many people in my life that'll run around and get me this, that, this, that, and this on a regular basis. You know what I'm saying? 
So I not only express my gratitude through the tip that I leave, but I make it a point that every single time she or he brings something over that I've asked for to say thank you, to say thank you. One of the most powerful experiences I had about this, learning this, was when I went to Tokyo about uh, 19 years ago. And I just got off an 18-hour flight, uh, and it was like 5 a.m. in the morning, and I decided to take a walk rather than going into my uh, uh, hotel room and sleeping. So everything was just get waking up in Tokyo. And if you know Tokyo, Tokyo is a cleaner, bigger New York City. And so... Five o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning is when it really starts, is when all of the vendors, the service vendors, do their stuff. So I was standing outside looking at the guy delivering the milk, the guy filling the vending machines, the guy picking up the trash, the guy fixing the electric lines, and so forth, and it suddenly came to me. There were a lot of people taking care of me and making it possible for me to go about my day. How can I not be grateful? And when people say, well, give me a reason to be grateful, there, think. Your water does not just come. You see? The stuff that heats the house doesn't just happen. The food you eat on the table doesn't just, you know. One of the um, other experiences I had was uh, up in um, Fort Lee, New Jersey, is a, um, a Japanese community that lives there. And there's this supermarket there that is just, I mean, it's just overflowing with food and stuff of all kinds. And one day we took a friend of ours and his mother and brother there from the Ukraine with us. And when we went into the supermarket, they froze. They were so overwhelmed by what was available to them, they had to leave. And later on they said, we wait in line for bread. We couldn't handle the abundance, you see? So, th you know, the people who are responsible for bringing that, you know, we got generations growing up thinking food comes from the Acme, you know? No, it doesn't. Comes from the fields that you don't see in the sweat. You want to see where that comes from? Cranberry season and blueberry season, take a ride through the pine lands and see the pickers and the conditions they live in and the fields and the hours they spend picking those blueberries for you, you see, and the tomatoes and everything else for all of us. So there's never a reason to not be grateful and gratitude lights us up. It connects us with community. When you really practice it and you take the time to see how much we have to be grateful for, it's not a, it's not a matter of, you know, like, gee, thanks a lot. It's a matter of recognizing how we live in community and don't even realize it. People are delivering the stuff we need to get through the day while we are asleep at night for the most part. Be grateful to everyone. Did you know the food, did you grow the food you eat? Did you sew the clothes you wear? Did you drill the oil which heats your home and fills up your car? A tree offers its life and we are warm, housed, can write letters to each other and read books. When isn't there a time to be grateful? And if we can learn to practice gratitude, it lights us up. It lights us up.
Any questions about that? Okay, so I'm grateful you've been listening now. Take a break, come back and listen more, and I'll be really grateful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay. Hey, hey. I think I'm just going to start. <laughs> it's the cookies. Mm. Cookies and lightning. Cookies and lightning. <laughs> Tough. Tough. <laughs> it's really The next marking of a truly happy life has to do with a word that growing up in an Italian household means a lot, and that is to savor every moment, every day. To savor it is very different than just being aware. It has to do with what I talk about at the monastery as quintessential for any real transformational Zen training and that is intimacy. The truly happy person is someone who has the ability and the willingness to truly be intimate with the moment, to be intimate with their life and the lives of others. So the next marking is savor every day, every day moments, every moment of every day. Dictionary to savor says, to give oneself to the enjoyment of. Study participants, study participants who took time to savor ordinary events that they normally hurried through, or to think back on pleasant moments from their day, showed significant increases in happiness and reductions in depression. So to savor the moment is, again, much more than just being aware of it or noticing it. It has to do with intimacy. It has to do with learning how to be intimate, both with the joyful experience or happy experience and the not so joyful or not so happy experience. Intimacy is absolute in any effort to grow or to learn in order to grow. Unless, if you are not willing to learn how to be intimate with the moment, <coughs> exactly as it is, and exactly as it isn't, then there are no possibilities to learn. And again, watching my daughter grow up and how she approached touching things and smelling things and picking things up, you could see that little children, like on Christmas, don't see Santa with their eyes. They see Santa with their whole body, you know what I'm saying? They see Christmas with their whole body, if you will. And that's what we mean by intimacy to really embrace the moment, to really become intimate with it and savor it, no matter what it is. Even, you know, the sourdough, even the, you know, the fat on the meat, if you will. Savoring the moment <clears throat> creates the opportunity to learn how to truly be present to whatever's going on, and again, able to do that without discrimination or prejudice. So the teaching or the marking is, again, this of course is an example of another fundamental Buddhist practice called mindfulness. Now that word mindfulness, again, 
is synonymous with the word to savor. To savor is to really taste something, to really lend yourself to the pleasure of that, you know, of that tasting. When we are mindful, we stay in the present moment and really pay attention to our experience. Walking, meditation, and even eating can be ways of savoring everyday moments. In being present, we dwell in the present without obsessing about the past or future. And this brings radiant happiness. And one of the Buddhist saints wrote these words, which I like a lot. They sorrow not for what is past. They have no longing for the future. The present is sufficient for them. Hence, it is, it is they appear Hence, it is so that they appear so radiant. They meaning the bodhisattva, the, the, the highest uh, level of enlightenment that has learned how to truly savor the moment. To savor the moment and to learn how to be intimate with the here and now reduces our attachment to the past and reduces our ex expectations for the future. It is about living life from the place and again, we've been talking about skillful context ways of living. This context is about living life from the place that the moment is sufficient. Whatever it is at this moment, it is sufficient. There is something I can learn from this moment. There is something to gain from taking the time to savor what is going on here and now. And again, what often robs us of any real learning that leads to true growth is our discriminatory or prejudicial approach to the moment. If we, if we bring an expectation of it to be a certain way and it doesn't happen that way, we spit it out. The Buddha taught to not, to taste it. One of the uh, powerful uh, teachings that he did with his own monks back in the day was he would make them uh, meditate or learn to meditate in graveyards. And again, in India, graveyards aren't like graveyards here in uh, Cherry Hill. Uh, bodies are wrapped in shroud and laid on the ground until the guys in charge come along and pick up the bodies and throw it into the fire to cremate them. So the monks <coughs> meditating in graveyards was ta taught to meditate near a corpse and to literally not turn their eyes from what death was not try to, uh, uh, you know, cut off the, the smell and everything else, and to r become intimate with their experience of death, so that in order for, and so that in that way they would come to fully understand the ultimate resolve of life. We are all going to die. And as I often say to my students, that isn't even the problem for you. The problem is, None of us have a clue when. And so in order for me, me to truly savor life and life's moments, I need to really savor the taste of death. And I can do that. I don't need to you know, do it the way the Buddha did it with the monks, and I don't even need to volunteer in hospice to do that. I can do that by sitting and meditating on the fact that I am going to die. And I am not going to see my daughter again when that happens. Or she could die, and I haven't a clue about that if that were to happen. Death is present in life and His Holiness the Dalai Lama taught me and others good life, good death, good death, good life. Meaning if you want to resolve how do you live your life skillfully and fulfilling, 
resolve the matter of death. And in that, in that space, one comes to savor every moment. I do not believe that we can truly savor any person in our life, any experience in our life, any moment in our life, until we really feel it in our bones that one day I, I am either going to lose that person or I am going to die and not have the opportunity ever again to experience that. It is though that resolve, that resolve that informs the way I am with the moment, that allows for intimacy. Do not resent or resist <laughs> confusion or uncertainty. The fast version of that, stop being a fixer. Give up trying to fix your life. There's nothing to fix. From the moment you were born, guess what? It's broke, okay? And stays broke, okay? It just keeps breaking down as time goes on, you see? So if there's nothing to fix, and we waste so much time in the energy of always trying to fix life, what is the alternative? The alternative is to know that life has something to offer us just for the sake of living. That we don't need to have, you know, this kind of objective or goal to fix life. Life works just fine as it is, and we need to see that for ourselves. When it feels like it's not working just fine as it is, when it feels like we have to fix it, those are the moments we really reflect about what fixing really means for us. And what is that? When I feel I've got to fix life or you, what do I really feel i got to do? Control it. Control it. No. Yeah. I want to control it before you get out of hand, you see, and so forth. When nothing is sure, everything is possible. We live in a culture that has robbed us of so much possibility because it is designed to achieve absolute. And there is no absolute. There is no absolute. When nothing is sure, everything becomes possible. When nothing is sure, everything becomes possible. And the age-old saying of Zen masters have always been the same. Whenever the student has come to say, this is it, and the master says, not necessarily so. Not necessarily so. To come, we need to learn how to embrace the uncertainty of life, to embrace the uncertainty of tomorrow. To embrace it means to accept it or to choose it, which is how I prefer saying it, to choose uncertainty. I often tell the story that of my first um, uh, spiritual experience, the, the, the uh, metamorphical experience that I had at a very young age. And it was as a young Catholic boy during the time when they had only the Latin Mass. And when I went to church, uh, he didn't even give the homily in, in English. It was all Latin. And that was sufficient for me because I didn't want to understand because somehow the experience of everything else that was going on in that moment for me, the incense, the mystery that that conveyed, was far more powerful than what he could have said to me about dogma or doctrine. And that is, when people ask me, why Zen? That is what attracted me most to this path. The, emph the emphasis on uncertainty as a way of living that allows for real freedom and possibility. 
when we are insistent upon knowing, we define. And when we define, Webster says, we fix the limits of it. To define means to fix the limits of it. So the moment we are certain about anything, we automatically define it, and when we define it, we've caged it into a box. All possibility for anything else, at least for me, to learn anything else from this is over, is over. And usually it takes a little kid to come along and say, the king has no clothes. That's the kind of blindness, certainty, you know, or the desire or the craving for certainty uh, provides us with. So it's all mystery. I haven't a clue what's coming tomorrow, and I don't care because I may not make it. I may not make it. So right now, I only care about here and now and savoring it as much as I can. Real happy people do not concern themselves about trying to make the future work out until the future gets there. I'm saying, until the future gets there. This is a big one and one I love talking about because it is where my work started and where my work continues and where my work will end. And the simple version of it is avoid comparing. Avoid comparing. Not only is that essential in liberating yourself from a life of fear and self-doubt and low confidence, it is essential because reality is you can't compare anything to anything. And all comparisons are nothing more than definitions or opinions or beliefs. You especially cannot compare yourself to anyone else, and that's what this marking is about. Stop trying to be anyone other than who you are, because that is when you're the happiest. You don't want to know if I'm loved. You want to know if you're loved. You see? You don't want to know if my life's happy. You want to know if your life is happy. We all, in that way, I say to my students, selfishness gets you to this monastery, but it will not keep you here. But it is necessary. And so it's what Suzuki Roshi called wise selfishness. And wise selfishness begins with the reality, the realization, the awakening, I am incomparable. There's no one you can compare yourself to. Who are you going to compare yourself to? Who? How can you do it? You are the most unique thing, if you will, that exists. There was never anyone like you before you were born, and there will never be anyone like you afterwards. And how can you compare the moment without expecting suffering? Whenever I compare what's going on now to the way I think it should be, that's the cause of suffering, and that is the cause of no happiness. Not because what is going on now is necessarily all that bad. It's because I have defined it and fixed the limits of it having any potential to offer me anything. And we do that every time we compare ourselves, our circumstances, our situations, when we compare our lovers, our friends, our partners, our spouses, our parents, our children, to anyone else, to anyone else. Suffering compounds. 
While keeping up with the Joneses is part of American culture, comparing ourselves with others can be damaging to happiness and self-esteem. Instead of comparing ourselves to others, focusing on our own personal achievement leads to greater satisfaction. And I want to say something this moment about you perfect people. Okay? You'll find that you're much more happier being yourself and striving for that because that's what you're perfect at. Everything else, you're imperfect at. Okay? And imperfection, you know, uh, Andrew Cohen? The music writer? Cohen. Cohen. Leonard Cohen, Cohen, thank you. Leonard Cohen's one song says it all for me. You know, don't get caught up about the crack because that's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. So when people ask me, are you perfect? I say, yes, perfectly imperfect. You see, I'm perfectly imperfect, and I love my imperfections because when I have embraced my imperfections, as much as I've embraced my perfections, all blame, shame, guilt drops away. Like I tell people, I am going to disappoint you. Act accordingly. You see? And I expect that from you. And when I expect that from you, when I expect that you are going to mess up, then again, when that happens, back to what we were talking about earlier, what you do does not show up as oppositional to the relationship. It shows up as part of being human. And it's a human being I happen to be in love with or in a relationship with. We're nothing else. And that's the other thing. We are not angels. Okay? We are not gods. I love it when the Buddha... You know, he's confronted by one of his disciples about that question. Are you, a, are you a god? He says, no. Are you a prophet? He says, no. Are you a deity? He says, no. And finally he says, I am awake. End of story. Period. And in that way he freed millions and millions and millions of followers of the Buddha Dharma. He freed them up and, and made it so clear, as I've said for many, many years, The divine is human, and the human is divine. And it's because you keep looking for the divine as separate from your humanity, you don't find that sacred, as the lady asked me the other day in everyday life. So we give up comparing, and we give up striving to be angels, because we're not angels, and we never will be. Ask my parents, they'll tell you. We're not angels, and we never will be, and who cares? I don't. I don't. I don't want to be anything more than who I am. Buddhists are advised to avoid conceit. Now, in the West, we think of conceit as a sense of superiority. But in Buddhism, conceit, conceit includes thinking you are inferior to others. And it includes thinking that you're equal to others. What's left? Just not thinking in terms of self and other at all. It doesn't matter. Because the one thing you've got going for yourself that you keep missing every time you measure yourself up to some ideal or someone else or some desire is you are already perfect and complete. Nobody can be you. Nobody can do it the way you do it. And you keep robbing me and the rest of life about what you brought with you at birth (coughs) and have failed yet to fulfill. You are the missing link. When you ask the question... Why is the world the way it is? Look in the mirror. You are the missing link. 
I am absolutely convinced, and we were talking about this on that television show afterwards, the host and I, I'm absolutely convinced that the suffering we see on our planet is exclusively a function of millions and millions of people not living lives that have anything to do with who they are and doing things they would rather not do. And that is a function of living out of some ideal as to who you should be rather than just being you. That's what showed up, you know, and as I've talked about it in the past, when you showed up the first day, you didn't have to do anything, and everybody came to see you. <laughs> everybody wanted to touch you. Everybody wanted to pick you up. When you pooped in your diaper, they all said, oh, how cute. You poop in your diaper now, you're more concerned with pointing at the other guy for pooping than cleaning yourself up. You see? I mean, think about it. My daughter only has to show up. She, she knows she doesn't have to do anything. She only has to show up. And I'm happy and I'm content. She is sufficient just as she is in that moment because she showed up. Period. That was what was true about you. That is what is true about you. And the sooner you learn that, the freer you will be. Though possessing many a virtue, one should not compare oneself with others by deeming oneself better or equal or inferior. Just give up the conversation. So when you go back to the three important questions, is this conversation getting you any closer to where you want to be? When the conversation is about whether you're good enough or they're good enough, drop it. It will not get you anywhere but where you've always been, questioning yourself and others. Or again, as Trungpa Rinpoche says, you don't even trust your own mind. You don't even trust your own mind. Do good. Avoid doing harm. Appreciate your lunacy and imperfections. Pray or ask for help when you need it and accept it when it comes graciously. Accept it graciously when it comes. Once again, do good. Avoid doing harm. I love appreciate. These are teachings of the Buddha. I appreciate your lunacy and imperfections. Pray for help and accept it when it comes graciously. I am real clear that I need you I am real clear that I would not be in this room today if it wasn't for you. And I am real clear that because of that fact, I get to be who I truly am. Therefore, I am happy it all falls together. You know what So, do good. Or as I say to my students, live your life as a benefit for the world. Avoid doing harm. You're not going to be able to avoid it all the time. So, the Buddha said, do the least harm do the least harm. Appreciate your lunacy and imperfections. I, there's a wonderful um, uh, practice among Hasidic uh, rabbis. And once a year, they, are, they lock themselves off from the community, uh, <coughs> get naked, get drunk, and run around the room being lunatics. And this is to help them, again, keep the balance, if you will. So I get to do it with my daughter when she dresses me up as Cinderella, and we have a tea party, and she puts makeup on me. I got pictures if you want to see. <laughs> and uh, 
she she yells at me, right, Hojin? Hojin! <laughs> she yells at me when I don't do it the way she says. So, enjoy your lunacy and imperfections. Ask for help, whether it's in the form of prayer or whether it's in just asking someone else for help. Ask for help. You have no idea how liberating that request can be. Not because you get help that you need, but because we all resist the notion that we need help from someone else. We all go there. I can handle this. You know. I can do this myself. Well, good for you, because I will tell you, if there's anything more humbling and at the same time more powerful, is to realize you can't. And I've been there. I'll say. You know, and if it wasn't for my friends and family who were there to help me, I wouldn't be here tonight. Those of you who have experienced it in your physical health, you know what I mean. There's nothing more liberating than a heart attack. Nothing more liberating. You, know, you don't argue with the EMTs. <laughs> you just completely surrender to them. You're the guys, you know what to do, let's get rolling. Same. Prayer is powerful and places all things in perspective. Be mindful of your thoughts, words, and actions. In this way, avoiding doing, the, doing as much harm as you can avoid doing. Be unconditionally kind to yourself and stop criticizing or judging your imperfections and mistakes. And again, be, be proactive in doing good or positive acts which benefits others and in turn benefits you. Be proactive in that. You know, every day of your life, discover what is needed. A friend of mine used to say, you want to know what power is? You want to know what it really is to be powerful and to really be happy? Wake up tomorrow morning, discover what is needed, and produce it. There's nothing more powerful than becoming proactive in discovering what is needed and producing it. Some of you aren't going to like this Put wealth and possessions low on the list. Need I say any more? <laughs> there is nothing wrong with having wealth and possessions, but when you take the time to really look at you and wealth and possessions, they have you. You see? They have you. We have a whole nation that has gone kaput. And it began when we convinced a whole nation that wealth and possessions mattered. That wealth and possessions mattered. The Buddha said, wealth and possessions rot and rust and disappear, just like everything else. One of the most happiest men I ever met in my life was a guy who was a millionaire. And he, when he told me about his happiness, here's how he explained it. I've made a million and lost a million. I've made two million and lost three million. I don't know how I did that, but I did that, he said. When I don't get serious about either side, I've been happy. I always look at it this way. If I made it once, I can do it again. And if I don't do it again, then I got nothing to worry about. Because the IRS doesn't bother me. <laughs> doesn't even care if I'm alive. <laughs> Have meaningful goals and plans. At the end of the evening at the Zendo, uh, the Durrani, do not squander your life. 
If you're going to have goals, because this is something everybody asks me all the time, well, what about goals and plans? Nothing wrong with goals and plans as long as they are meaningful and purposeful. Do not squander your life. Do not waste a moment of your life on unmeaningful and unpurposeful, if you will, goals and plans. When at work, do it with integrity and take initiative. If you want your work life to change, only you can change it. And we go back to what my friend said about discovering what is needed. He said, if you want to get a raise at work, he said to me, here's how you do it. You go in Monday morning, you go up to the boss's office, and you say, boss, what do you need? I'm here to produce it. He said, it's a win-win situation. Either he's going to throw you out or he's going to promote you. you know There's nothing more powerful than a proactive individual who takes the initiative to bring to the game what is needed. And this, is the, this last one I love the most, of course, and so will you because it's so full of sentiment and everything else. Oh, no, it's not the last one, okay, this, but I love this anyway. Treasure friends and family and let them know it regularly. Not just during holy days, not just at Valentine. You know, I tell people about relationships, Valentine's Day should go every day with you. Every day. You don't need to wait till February 14th. You make it every day, watch what will happen. See? So treasure your friends, treasure your friends, treasure your friends and family, treasure them. Don't take them for granted. Uh, last night I got a telephone call from a dear friend of mine. Her mother was in an accident and died instantly of a heart attack. Gone. Gone. Forever gone. And her grief, my grandfather told me when I was very young, was because she took it for granted. Do not squander your life. Do not squander an opportunity to tell those you are grateful for those you love how much you love them the moment my child shows up in the living room in the morning to the moment she falls asleep at night we don't stop telling each other that be grateful treasure your friends and family treasure the Dharma treasure your brothers and sisters treasure the monks that's what the Buddha talked about treasure these people in your life do not take them for granted. We don't just, I love this, we don't just need relationships. We need close ones. We are not satisfied with just having a relationship. We need close ones. We need ones where we take the time to treasure the relationship. Because once it is gone, gone, forever gone. Here we go. Be active. And by that we mean physically active. Believe it or not, the Buddha told his monks that. Monks, there are these five benefits of walking up and down. What five? One is fit for long journeys. One is fit for striving. One has little disease. That which is eaten, drunk, chewed, tasted, goes through proper digestion. The composure attained by walking upright and down is long-lasting. These monks are the five benefits of walking up and down. And what he was talking about was walking, taking a walk. Be active every day of your life. 
be active. My mother, who uh, had a history along with all of her sisters, she had nine sisters, and uh, she, they all got rheumatoid arthritis. And my mother was the only one out of the other eight sisters who didn't end up with clubbed uh, fists and feet. And my father will tell you to this day was because when we lived uh, where I grew up, she planted regularly 300 and some flowers on our property. She was always active, working in the garden and so forth. About three years ago, she was diagnosed with um, Yeah, the Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's and yeah, dementia. dementia, and you know she had to go into a uh, you know care home, and my father lives there with her now, and she can barely walk sometimes. So be active, get off the sofa, take a walk, if not for yourself, for the rest of us. And last but not least, the quintessential context that that includes all that we've talked about tonight. Whatever you meet is the path. Whoever you meet is the Buddha. In authentic spiritual practice, there are no breaks or mistakes. There are no breaks or mistakes. It's kind of like life goes on. You take a break, you're going to miss it. Everything is practice, practice everything, everywhere, every moment. Take responsibility because you are responsible. And as Nike Buddha says, just do it. Shut up. Stop complaining about it. Just do it. <laughs> so, what's your resolution? I suggest that the best resolution is to live your life fuller in the new year. Drop the complaining about it. Drop the imaginary story of limitations and find out, no matter how old you are and where you've come from and what you think your future is, how powerful you really are in this moment. When you do that, you will be happy. And guess what? So will I. Because one of the surest uh, in, in, in research facts that have come up is that when people are happy, they let the rest of us be. They let the rest of us be. You know, when you ask the question, why is she so critical of everyone? It's because she's so critical of herself. See, the way I avoid my own self-criticism is by making you worse. You know what I'm I make you worse, and I must be better. Oh. <laughs> Stupid dog chasing its tail, right? So, this is the last one of 2013, and possibly the last one of my life, because none of us know. So I mean this with all my heart. You have been with me through these Zen chats, and I look forward to being with you again next year. Get to the monastery. Get into practice with us. These guys are really fun to be with, except sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love you. Happy holy days. Make them holy. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.